honest, honestly, there's two things about the story itself that, that really drew me in. Uh, one was the theme that it was different, that it was built around a different idea than the original series. The original series was, you know, based on this uh, idea of uh, sort of telling a story that is all about the consequence of war. This, uh, Suzanne, decided to write a story about the state of nature debate. And this idea of like, are we as humans sort of innately savage and brutal or are we as humans innately good? Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the bloody roots of The Hunger Games are explored in director Francis Lawrence's action-adventure drama, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. In this prequel to the popular franchise, a young Coriolanus Snow mentors for the 10th Hunger Games and develops feelings for the female tribute from District 12, Lucy Gray Baird, years before he becomes the tyrannical president of Panem. In addition to The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Lawrence's other directorial credits include the feature films The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, The Hunger Games Catching Fire, Red Sparrow, I Am Legend, and Constantine, and episodes of the series Kings and Sea. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Lawrence spoke with director Mark Webb about filming The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, West Hollywood. How are you guys doing? How'd you like the movie? You're still here. So, pretty great. We got a photographer up front. How exciting. Uh, Francis and I have known each other for probably 20 years. Uh, I had the, the, the very fortunate experience of uh, being a younger director in the office next to him at uh, our music video company, DNA, David Naylor and Associates. And I would, I came, I think the first time I, I, I remember Francis was before I met him, when I first moved to LA, there was a, a video from Coolio uh, where all these people were stepping off of bridges and then and it was that, uh, was the Matrix sort of frozen moment effect right. before the Matrix did it. And it was very kind of moving and sweet and uplifting until I talked to him later and he's like, no, all those people died at the end of the video. And that was a, a welcoming to, to Francis's brutal vision uh, of the world, which uh, brings me to, uh, to, to talk about what, I mean, you've clearly, um, uh, been in the Hunger Games universe for quite some time. What is it that drew you to this specific movie, the prequel? Um, and what what was different about this thematically than uh, the previous movies? Um, I, 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 there's a few things that drew me to this story in, in particular. I mean, one one of them, not just sort of on a, on a personal level, I really like working with Suzanne Collins, the author of the books. I love working with Nina uh, Jacobson, uh, the, the producer of the series. So the idea of like reuniting with them, that was a, a fantastic idea for me. But I think, um, honest, honestly, there's two things about the story itself that, that really drew me in. Uh, one was the theme that it was different, that it was built around a different idea than the original series. The original series was, you know, based on this uh, idea of uh, sort of telling a story that is all about the consequence of war. 
right? And all the different facets of that. This, uh, Suzanne, uh, sort of inspired, I would say, around 2016 and starting to sense the sort of polarization of, uh, you know, the United States, but also the polarization of the way people think of one another around the world and decided to write a story about the state of nature debate. And this idea of like, are we as humans sort of innately savage and brutal or are we as humans innately good? Um, so that really drew me in. Where do you think she came down on that one? Yeah. Well, I think snow comes out in a very specific, the more, the more Hobbesian view of the, the people are savage and brutal, you know, being groomed by the Viola character in that direction. Um, the other thing that I really, that intrigued me was the sort of the challenge of telling the, you know, a villain origin story, um, that, I really like. I like those kinds of stories. You know, when you look at things like Macbeth or you look at the Joker, you look at Breaking Bad, to see people sort of descend into darkness is really interesting to me. Um, and I tend to also like some sort of stories about kind of lonely, solitary characters. I am legend. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, you know, the combination of all these sort of factors like really drew me into into doing this film. And you, you, you had a particularly difficult job in... Um, having to find actors that were very young to hold a movie of this size in a franchise of this kind, how you know, partnered up with some real heavy hitters like Viola and Peter Dinklage, who are you know incredible veterans. How did you go about finding those actors? And Tom, in particular, was very impressive. What had he done before? Yeah, I, I honestly, I wasn't familiar with any of Tom's work, actually. So he came in and audition came in really kind of late in the game. Um, we had seen a lot of people and some fairly good, but he kind of came in um, pretty last minute. And I remember being on a train in Germany and we were scouting and I saw his his audition, uh, his self-tape, and it just kind of blew everybody out of the water. You just knew he was, he was going to be the guy. But I will, just jumping back a little bit, I think... We knew going in, we were not going to be using stars for sort of the three or four kind of younger leads in this movie for the Coriolanus, for the Lucy Gray, for Tigress, for Sejanus. That for the most part, we were going to be using sort of relative newcomers. And this is an approach that goes all the way back to the original series. I mean, of course, now everybody thinks of, you know, Jennifer Lawrence as this huge star, but the truth is she'd really only been in Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone, yeah. And, you know, so she had gotten some um, acclaim critically for it, but the truth is, is not many people had seen that movie. So the sort of front and center leads of those early films were also very young, very fresh faces but then surrounded by these kind of legacy veteran actors. And we wanted to take the same approach here. Um, so we knew we were going to find a relative unknown for, for Coriolanus. They, well, they weren't, there wasn't as much interaction between those other actors and the younger actors. So you had to build an esprit, I would imagine, between those younger actors. I know Rachel was on my movie and flew over to your set yeah. like the day uh, before she started, a couple days before she started shooting. And I believe you were saying the arena shot was the first thing that she entered into, which is a highly choreographed scene, which one would think you'd have to rehearse quite elaborately. How, can you talk about the rehearsal process with that, how you incorporated her and 
plan that whole sequence out. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, that was, it was a strange thing. And, uh, and, you know, there was some, there was some real tension because, uh, you know, we were, we were afraid your movie was going to run over schedule. Um, and we had a, a very hard start date because the, the arena, which was in Poland, we only had this very specific window. Um, and so we had to shoot some stuff without her and everything kind of got jumbled up schedule wise. So she came in, she finished your movie. She came in and she had, I think a, we were like a day over. We had a, yeah, I think, I think you were nightmare. And, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there was a COVID thing, something, something oh, like that. Yeah. There was all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. COVID thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, she flew in and that sequence, the first sequence in the arena, when the bell rings and everybody starts to fight for this first time, which we called the bloodbath, um, she came in, uh, it had been, that was a sequence that had been planned for months with me and the, the stunt team. Um, and so we walked through the story beats and we had done sort of video viz and a lot of choreography with the, with the stunt team on stages with sort of mock-ups of, you know, the rubble and all of that. And then when the actors that play the tributes came in, they all learned the stunt choreography it was re sort of shot on video again, refinements made. So basically everybody had it down and it was rehearsed again in the actual arena. And then Rachel was the last person to come in and get kind of plugged in. So she, yeah. she, she walked in and we choreographed it with her and my a camera operator, Dave Thompson and the stunt team and all the tributes who like knew their, you know, their stuff already. It, it, it felt like that sequence is told primarily from her point of view. Too. Yes. So she was like, you're really hanging on her quite a bit. So it's a lot of pressure. Can you talk, uh, you know, we were talking about this before we came in. I think one of the things that's interesting as a director and every director has their own style and feeling and language. But when you talk about blocking, it is so, uh, it's such a pivotal, important, crucial part of how we see cinema, the mise-en-scene, you could say, like how these people relate to the camera. How has that evolved for you? Because back in the music video days, you have three minutes and you're like, here's the verse, here's the chorus. You are driven by a piece of, by a piece of music. And if you're going to tell a story, it has to be told within very strict parameters. Um, and you're usually sort of thinking in terms of this shot or this shot or this shot. What are you doing differently now uh, and how have you learned about the blocking process as a director? Um, well, I think, I think, I mean, I've always been drawn to the visual side. I mean, whether it's world building or the photography, I've always been drawn to the visual side of filmmaking. I mean, it's, it's kind of what drew me in the first place. I've always been sort of in love with, with that. I think that's part of why I think I worked a lot in music videos. It's a very visual medium. Um, as you know. And, uh, I, I think that when I started my first movies with, you know, Constantine and things like that, I was still really thinking visually. So I was, I was imagining frames and kind of wedging actors into these sort of imagined images in my I, head. I remember like Constantine walking down the center hallway of a cathedral and somebody stepping out behind them. And I was like, Oh, that's a clever trick, but it's it very orchestrated. I did not see any of that in this new film. No, 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 no. Like, yeah, my thinking of blocking is entirely changed. And I think I was basically wedging actors and sort of trying to figure out how to manipulate and maneuver them into frames that I imagined. And then over time, and I think partly when I was doing I Am Legend and working with Will and because he was really the only actor in the movie primarily, mm -hmm. 
And so I spent so much time with him. Um, I started to get closer to actors and started to think about them and collaborate with them more and be less intimidated by them, quite honestly. And so then when I moved into doing The Hunger Games, I mean, you know, we just had so many amazing, talented actors all the time, whether it was Jen or Woody or Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, you could go on and on. I learned so much. But I now go into scenes when I start thinking, even when I'm scouting locations and thinking about the scenes, I start going in and I try to think like the characters Mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking about my frames. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I try to imagine if I'm Coriolanus or if I'm Lucy Gray, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What do I want? Where am I going to move to? Why does that make sense? What's the emotional value of the the movie? So you have all those answers when they come to you. Yeah, but it's also, it helps me have my plan, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes I'll even be thinking those things like when we build a set so that I know that if there's certain geography within a set, um, that I want to see, I'll start to, des- to, you know, work with the production designer to design the way we use a location or the way we build a set so that the blocking works, but it starts from a, a character point of view now. Right. And, and so in digging into that a little bit, the language, I feel like the, there, this film felt looser and more vibrant and, and more handheld to, to, to put a term to it than, um, the previous films. Do you feel like that was true? I mean, you had to, it's the board of this film was, had to be so it was expansive and I'm imagining you had less resources. Uh, you have to move faster. Uh, I'm guessing. Um, how did you go about doing that and how, um, what was the language that was specific to this movie, both in terms of design which it felt like a, like a 1950s inspired design and in terms of the film language, how you move the camera. The, the, the film language is actually not that different. I, I think there's a, there's a reason it feels a little different um, and it's slightly kind of a technical one, but all of the Hunger Games films were handheld, though, what I sort of call like the kind of formal faux docu style, right? Where you're not sort of physically shaking the camera or anything like that, but it's on somebody's shoulder. Where did that come from? Where, how did that evolve? What was the reason? I started to do it on I am legend actually a lot that it starts. It's like part of it is honestly that I, I started feeling that when you put a camera on a dolly and you have track or you're on a tripod that suddenly all these stands and flags and lights and everything goes up and suddenly the camera feels like you can't move it anymore. Where if it's on somebody's shoulder, there's a, there's a freedom. And especially when you have a great camera operator and I've been using the same a camera operator since, since I am legend, it becomes, you can, you can play. It becomes a little bit of a dance with the actors and with the emotion of a scene. And you can make little changes in between takes where I feel like as soon as it's on that like stand, you're like locked down um, and you lose some of the some of the freedom. I think the big difference with this visually is that I've gotten really into using the large format digital cameras. Right. So it's the basically it's the 65 millimeter um, sensor. And so you have this kind of shallower depth of field and you can also use much wider lenses. Um, it did feel like there was a, a nod in the wider direction. Yeah, there, there really is. But part of it is because these wider lenses don't warp 
um, because they're, you know, uh, I'm blanking on the term for it now. It'll come to me, of course, right after this interview. But there's, there's, uh, yeah, they don't warp in the same way. So you can almost go fisheye and you don't get like the bulby nose and the warped yeah. face or anything like that. Yeah, there's so a you, lot of close-ups with the wide angle lens, which is a daring, th- would have 10 years ago been quite... Yeah, and I, 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 part of the language is I love to do that because what I, I like feeling close to the actors, and I feel like an audience who may not be familiar with lenses knows the difference between a super long lens that's you know a quarter of a mile away yeah. on a close up versus a camera that's like right in somebody's face. Like if you think about the end in the forest, yeah. how close you are to yeah, Tom Blythe's to face when he's yeah. changing and crying and getting angry and going dark. Um, it would be a completely different feeling. I mean, that that camera was probably an inch away from his his face. And how moment. do the actors react to that? I mean, a lot of people will get are, are, can get really. They get used to it. Yeah, I think they're surprised the first time that the our camera operator brings a camera like this close to their face. But they they you know within a few days they. But settle I think in. it can positively impact the performance. I think it does. Yeah, I mean, I think they feel like you're really in there with them, and they also create like you know a, a real bond with the a camera operator too. And there's like a trust with with him. And I've seen Rachel some interviews with Rachel, and she's talking about Dave. Yes, you know? exactly. Also, I think it's interesting you you've get, you've gotten to keep your a cop a camera operator um with different directors of photography and you brought him to berlin and poland on this movie yeah but uh what's what's strange about that is so i actually met him um on i am legend through andrew lesney and it was the only movie i did with him um and then Yo Willems, who's done most of my movies ever since, uh, happened to use him too. So there was sort of the, we had the common ground already of having him as our favorite A camera operator. And so now we've just been able to kind of all be together th- since Catching Fire. So we talked about the handheld. I want to drill, drill down on the camera language a little bit more. So you, you, you have a handheld feel. There's a, there's a lens choice that you prefer you're trying to render a sort of an emotional storyline. How are you moving the camera? How are you, uh, like, I think about point of view a lot. Like, where am I, do I enter into a room before the character enters to, into a point of view? How are you attaching a scene to a character? Or are you, are you, do you think about feelings when you read a scene? Do you think about, I mean, I'm sure you think about it all, but where do you, how do you, what's your philosophy about blocking a scene or putting a scene together? Um, I think that there, there's two things. One is really point of view and the other one is the emotional value. So when... Tell me about, what do you mean by point of view? Point of view is for me is like whose who's point of view are, are you seeing the scene through, right? And primarily in the story, the point of view is going to be Coriolanus Snow. So I know because I think you can get into real trouble if you don't know who your anchor is in any given scene because then you start covering and covering and covering and covering. Um, And it's kind of a mess. And the truth is we knew that the story in general is through his point of view, except when we're in the arena. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then we're sort of watching it from his point of view. So, uh, so I'm, I know that I'm always anchored with him mm-hmm. and then and in when this you say anchored. Yes. Like, I just think, again, I felt anchored as soon as Rachel started running around. I'm like, I'm seeing all those people in the background. You have 15 characters you don't have to cover everybody in a close-up. You're just seeing it sort of from what the angle from her, basically from her, uh, from her position and from his position. Correct. So, uh, you know, the book is 
all in his point of view. Mm-hmm. And in the adaptation process, I knew that there was no way we were going to be able to get through the second act of this movie, which is the games and not be in the arena with her. Right. So we're getting there because he's watching it. He's been in the arena. He's seen the tunnels and seen the the air ducts and all this kind of stuff. And he's watching her. Um, but we do go in. So we're either anchored with him or we are anchored with her because so you're getting their experience um, and feeling their emotions through through the sequence. And part of that is being close and the wide lenses do two things. One is it allows you to feel really intimate with characters, in my opinion. But because they're wide, you're also still getting a sense of geography, right? So you get the world building, some of the design, some of the visuals that I like, other characters in the background, things and that are happening. continue that wide angle. Did you have a couple lenses that you stuck with? And did you continue that widening a lens, which it felt like you did in the other smaller environments? Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's a few times, I think in the forest at the end, we used the really, really, really wide lens. I think it was a, a 12 millimeter or something. Um, and in the, uh, in the arena, there's multiple times we used, used yeah. that lens. And in general, we, we stuck to very, very wide lenses for this movie. What mo- Did you guys look at other movies uh, when you were trying to generate this or is it something you, you and yo clearly have worked I mean, all the way back in the music video days um, have worked together uh, and have a clearly a, a rapport. Is there anything you guys looked at or references that, that you uh, dug into for the film? No, you know, we, it, it all sort of started. I mean, the handheld stuff, I really started leaning into on I am legend, but I didn't do that with him. And then when we did catching fire, we were doing handheld work um, and using wider lenses, but we were still shooting on film. And so we weren't going as wide and it was 35, um, and same with the mocking Jays. Then we went and we did red sparrow and we did red sparrow completely differently. Yeah. We did that. Well, like water for elephants is also very classic yeah. Hollywood, little bit longer lenses. Yeah. So slightly, I mean, still, I still always lean onto the, like the wider side, but not nearly as, as wide as this. And then when I, I did this show C for Apple, mm-hmm. Um, the first few episodes of that and, and part of what I wanted to do this, that's where I started using the large format digital cameras and started using the really wide lenses and really getting up in there. But you're in, you were on location, like you wanted to use that expanse. Exactly. And I, we kind of took that approach and then used it here. Um, and we did everything on location here. I, I think I was telling you outside, we only built one set which was the snow apartment. Everything else was a found location. That so what was, was augmented. that arena in Poland? Like? Uh, we found, we, that's why we had that window we had to start. We found this place called Centennial Hall. It was a, an amazing arena that was built in 1912, and it was in Wrocław, Poland, which is sort of the western side of, of Poland. And we kind of lucked in that we could have it from, I think it was like July 11th through, you know, sometime like mid August or, or something. So we had to start with the games. Um, but yeah, we shot everything on the, on location except for the snow apartment. And the, the, the stunt team was obviously in there. How long did you have to rehearse that scene? And what did you do? You, you did stunt viz. Did you do previs? No, 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 no previs. Um, the only previs that we did in this, there's two sequences we did previs for. One was the bombing of the arena. So when they're all taking the tour and then the bombs happen, that was previs and the snakes were previs. Mm-hmm. 
um, anything else that we did stunt-wise, we did sort of like a, a video viz for. And so the process that I do and I've been doing for, for a while is I'll usually sit down with a stunt team, um, you know, we'll have the script, we'll start to brainstorm ideas for what can happen and what people are doing. And, you know, when you have a sequence like the, the beginning of the games here, you have close to 24 actors that all have to be doing something. So we're, there was a lot of like making those maps. those you're going to see what they're going to be doing. Yes. In every so we had to, you know, shot. figure out where they're, where they all are, where are their weapons, what, what are their weapons, which ones are they going for? We had to go back to the book and go, who dies in the sequence, who gets injured in the sequence, who lives, who like runs and hides. Like, so we're sort of mapping all that kind of stuff out and we're brainstorming too. So, um, and so I would walk the stunt team through what was important to me in terms of story beats and what I wanted it to feel like emotionally. And then they would go and they would sort of block something out, shoot it, bring it to me, show it to me. And, you know, then I would give notes and it would kind of, we would just do sort of different iterations of it. They would like tweak it, refilm it, tweak it, refilm it based on my notes. And then once it was where I wanted it, then we brought the actors in and taught them the choreography. Right. And, and how long did you have to shoot the, shoot the sequence? The, that sequence, I think, I think we shot it in two days. Yes, it was impressive. Well, it's, big, big, it's intimidating, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, but on on Catching Fire, I learned a really valuable lesson, and there's a there's a sequence in that movie where Katniss and Peeta and Finnick are fighting these like sort of savage um, baboons, mandrills, and that was all choreographed and it was video vised. But I again, I wasn't quite anchored, like when you're talking about point of view, and I overshot it and we so we shot that thing for almost two weeks or something and so i've now really learned to be very specific be anchored in point of view figure it all out ahead of time so and then teach everybody ahead of time so everybody including the camera operator knows what they're doing on the day and then you can get through a sequence like that in two days and you you have less freedom in the editorial, but you've made your decisions. We've made the decisions. Exactly. There's a little bit of wiggle room. So, you know, I have some, some options, but I, I'm definitely just not get grabbing everything. We've made the decisions ahead of time. Yeah. I think it's action sequences where you're not over covering things. I think, you know, Alfonso Cuaron does amazing stuff where he'll throw an entire riot in the background. You're not doing any coverage and it is a quite powerful way to, witness the scene because you're so connected to, a, to the character, um, in a really, really literal way. Um, you, you talked about the snake sequence being, uh, previsd. I feel like previs, I certainly feel this in, in, in my work, like there was a real hot moment where previs was really fundamental to the process for so many filmmakers. And I feel like that's sort of, it's now become a little bit more specialized and people are looser. I see a lot more stunt fizz these days. Um, what's your sense of that? Um, I think I just, I, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's changed. And I think, um, part of that has to do with, you know, iPhones and, and little, you know, video cameras and the things that, you know, the sort of stunt teams can use to film these things now and how easy it is for stunt teams to cut their own work together. And, 
Um, but you know, there still are those certain sequences, right? Like we can't really use our iPhones and, and shoot a, you know, a stunt woman pretending to be Lucy Gray and get the sense of all the snakes. You want to get the sense of, um, you know, because it's the, it's the beginning of the visual effects process, the sense of what the actual scale is of, uh, the, of the arena. How big is the rubble pile? How big is the tank with the snakes? How many snakes are there going to be? What's the speed of this? the snakes um you express those technical things to the actors exactly they showed up in the morning yes exactly and so you know we do do all of that and get you start to figure a lot of stuff out by by using previs and same same with the the explosions because i knew that i wanted to like link it up and have it be really you know one kind of long circular take that's surrounding them and looking up at the ceiling and um you know it just really helps you figure it out and especially when you can be quite accurate with the the scale of the location. Yeah. Um, and, and just talk a little bit about Rachel, who we've both worked with, who's wonderful. And, uh, it's hard to, to think about this movie without thinking about the ballad of Lucy Gray and, and her extraordinary voice. I believe now, did she sing live? How was that for you? You didn't have a lot of time to do pre-records for her. No, I mean, yes, she said she sang everything live here. Um, the music was a really a great process. I mean, it was something that was new and kind of a, a big swing that would that Suzanne put into the book. So she had written the lyrics for all the songs already. But clearly not the music. Who who wrote the music? So Dave, we worked with a Nashville-based producer songwriter, Dave Cobb, who's amazing, um, who really understood the kind of genre we were going for, which was that sort of twenties, thirties Appalachian sound. Um, and he put the, together this great team of musicians and we sort of pre-recorded all of that. And this is before Rachel was, was even hired. So Rachel was my first choice. And I met with her in London when she was just starting to prep for your movie. And when she found out that we were going to be shooting in Poland and Germany two days after you guys wrapped, I mean, she went as, you know, the pale as a ghost and, um, and actually started to tear up and cry. And I knew she wasn't going to do the movie. And we had to search. She said no at first. And because she was already, I think, a little lonely and away from her family and away from her boyfriend. But we never found anybody better. I also told you you were a nightmare. What's that? I told you you were a nightmare too. I did not. Yes. This was wonderful. But luckily she came back around. I think she got near the end of your shoot. She saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and she then ended up calling back and saying, is the job still open? And we're like, yes, it is. You know, please do the movie. How, how cl- I remember that happening. I don't remember exactly, but it was relatively close to production. Wasn't it? it was, it was probably a month out from shooting when she finally said she, she would do it. So we had written this music with a stand in singer and she came in and we were starting in the arena. Um, so she didn't have to sing for a while. So we were shooting the, the games. And then on the weekends, she and I would go into a recording studio and Dave Cobb, our producer would be on zoom and she did pre-records, but the pre-records in my mind and in Rachel's mind were more of a, sort of a rehearsal in a sense to get the right kind of sound, right? We wanted to make sure that she found the voice for Lucy Gray and that's that sound for the kind of genre of music we were making. But I knew sitting in a recording studio with some candles and dim lights, right? You're never going to get the emotion yeah. that you will when you're pulling yourself up a cement slab in rubble when you're sweaty and dirty and you're imagining the snakes and you're feeling the anger and the reverence and, you know, 
you're never going to get that in the studio. And so we sort of leaned that way, but I always knew that she would sing live and she's so capable. She's incredibly capable. I mean, it's a real talent to be able to act through singing like, and, and just whether it's those moments in the club, I mean, just seeing what she sees and the inflection and the, her technical capability I've witnessed sort of up close. It's pretty extraordinary. And you got a, I think a great, Really, it's a, I think that song has sort of struck a chord. Yeah, I mean, not, nothing. Be, I mean, being in a real environment and singing it like it affects it affects the performance. But you know, like even when you, you bring up the club, the fact that we were recording her through the mic she's singing into, but it was also going through a PA. So the crowd we have of all the extras, they hear her through a sound system. She hears herself through a sound system. She can have a real interaction with the crowd. The like hooting and hollering when she starts to sing with the real reactions real. of the of the crowd. Um, who had never heard that before. No, they had never heard. Yeah, exactly. They hadn't heard the songs and, you know, now they're seeing somebody sing live, mm. um, not lip sync. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it just really shapes everything differently. I think we're being told to wrap up, but, uh, I really, really appreciate it. This is a big congratulations to you. It's so fun to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, Francis Lawrence. Thank you. Thanks for doing this, Mark. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.